Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Poker. My name is Sasha Stone, and I'm here with Jeffrey Wells. Hello. Hello. Jeffrey Wells. Hi. So Jeff, Jeff runs the mm. website Hollywood Elsewhere, hollywood-elsewhere.com, and I run the website awardsdaily.com. And uh, today we're going to talk to you about who we are and why we started this podcast. Um, so we're going to, we, we're just to, to announce to everybody that Jeff has a new microphone, and so he's going to be sounding better <laughs> now <All right. laughs> that we have a new microphone. Mm. And, uh, and so we'll just start, start right off the bat. Um, so Jeff, you want to go ahead and just talk about, well, first let's just say that Jeff and I have been friends for a really long time. I mean, what has it been, like 15 years, something like that? And at least. At least 15 years. We're, we're kind mm. of war, war buddies or <laughs> whatever mm. you call that. Like we, we just, both of us have gone through a lot in our careers and in our lives. And we find ourselves kind of on this weird little island of people who, people who, who still feel like they can speak freely, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, obviously that has made us exiles in a lot of ways from our former tribe uh we're both of us routinely called out and bullied and harassed on twitter and in our comment section and stuff like that but for whatever yeah. reason it hasn't shut us up yet so here we are <laughs> if you're a, if you're a person in the uh in the business of dispensing opinion or reactions to films or whatever it, the, the the marching orders the commands went out about four or five years ago that you have to adhere to a certain vocabulary a certain way of looking at life and and movies and basically it's about uh saying the right socially correct things about movies and whether and basically digesting movies as the as as uh, indicators of 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 social mores today of basically the the woke thing and if a movie meets the woke criteria that you're supposed to uh you know process movies by then it's fine and it can get good reviews and it'll certainly do well in the uh, award season uh like everything everywhere all at once and you know if, if it has that quality then it's okay but if you're more iconoclastic and more uh, coming from well if, i mean i've been coming from the same place ever since i started uh, in the big big time media in the early 90s i guess i could go back yeah to that. let's get a let's get a quick biography of jeff wells where were you born where did you go to school how did you get into the business what did you want to be when you grew up just uh where, where was i born my god i had it i had a traumatic birth <laughs> in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey. It's true. I was, uh, my, my mom was told to sit up and not assist with the birth process. And I was told that that was a kind of traumatic birth. Yeah. So I was, um, I mean, I was, you know, the, the doctor wasn't there. So they had to like stop the natural process or hold it up as best they could. Anyway, uh, the long and the short is that uh, I've been kind of a, um, a not much of a go alonger all my life. I was um, very um, curious and uh, had my own sense of humor, and I wasn't uh, particularly interested in in being a brown noser or getting good grades. I wanted to kind of march to my own drum, you know, from the time I was like five years old or even earlier. And I used to um, be fascinated. I mean, I, and basically when 
life became a uh, a difficult thing socially. Uh, I felt I felt very much at odds with uh, uh, the New Jersey social set that I grew up with in in junior high and high school. And I had friends, and I had uh, you know periods of of of, of joy and 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 uh, and rapture, but it was mainly uh, be- my uh, my real source of joy and rapture was movies. That's mm. what became the thing that uh, led led to a lot of good feelings in my life. And um, so I basically used to sneak into New York City when I was. 10, 11, 12 years old, go on the bus uh, without my parents' knowledge and walk around Times Square and, and look at the marquees. And I said, this is, this is definitely what I want to have something to do with when I get older. I tried to actually make a movie like Sp- Steven Spielberg did in, um, uh, when he was like 10. So uh, I used to go to Times Square and look at the marquees and then get back into to Westfield, New Jersey, um, you know, by dinner time, and they wouldn't be any, any the wiser. I was using my lawn mowing uh, uh, allowance money to go to go in. And um, I used to be uh, occasionally, particularly I used to do this when I was 12, actually, not not 10. It was more like 12, 13 and, uh, and, and 14. And I was basically uh, kind of um, occasionally uh, accosted by gay men when I did this. And that was a uh, uh, bizarre ritual. But guys used to kind of sniff around when I when I went into um, through the Port Authority bus terminal. And I was just, uh, but anyway, it was it was heaven. New York was heaven, and it was the place to, to to really like connect with the, with the glamour and the exotic excitement of of, of great films. So uh, journalistically, I didn't really get going in life because I was kind of um, you know the son of an alcoholic, uh, and the low self esteem that comes with that. And I and I just didn't get going young at a young stage in life with journalism and writing. It was there, it was in me, but I was uh, more into avoiding the influence of my father and my parents. So I went out to California and sort of did nothing, kind of kicking around. I didn't really get going in, in journalism until like the mid-70s, uh, 77 or 78 more particularly. The first writing I ever did was for the Westport Playhouse Cinema, uh, which was a great uh, little operation in the Westport Country Playhouse. And it was basically showing 16 millimeter films. Um, um, and I would write the program notes. That was my big thing. I would like write these assessments of, um, sorry, my hand just hit the mic. I would write these assessments of the films playing and hand out the program notes. And somehow out of that, I uh, heard about a, a, a brand new newspaper, a daily newspaper called the Fairfield County Morning News. And I managed to persuade those guys to let me write a column. Uh, this is starting in 77. Mm. And the column was called Deja Viewing. And it was basically, um, and also uh, another column called Film Flam. And Film Flam was about new stuff that was coming out. And, and I, I basically became a columnist before I really knew anything um, that much about journalism or, or writing, really, because I was kind of a struggling writer. I was able to write reasonably well, but I wasn't that good at it. You know, it was repetitive. Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of discipline in the style of the writing. So I kind of went into New York and started um, uh, to see what I could do as far as getting freelance assignments and 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 this, and yeah, anything. You know, and I went around showing my stuff and 
it, it was kind of rough, as you can imagine. And New York doesn't uh, suffer fools. And I wasn't a grade A at that point. And um, I got going with a the first thing that happened was doing Red, Robert Redford uh, uh, pieces uh, because I was uh, invited to up to Yale University to listen to him privately with a bunch of other folks, including a, a representatives from the Yale newspaper to listen to him talk about ordinary people. And it was the, kind of the first time that he had uh, spoken to it. He was invited to uh, attend a thing at Battelle Chapel and myself and a guy named Dan Yakir, who I was friendly with. And so anyway, we sold a bunch of uh, um, Robert Redford articles and we were accused of kind of um, being unscrupulous in our uh, doing this dishonestly because we didn't do it through his publicist, but we did do it in a in a in a forum that was attended by other people, and we were there and we got some remarks and whatnot. Now, yes, we didn't do it through the um, uh, good graces of of PMK and Pat Newcomb, his publicist, but we it was a legitimate thing. We didn't like surreptitiously talk record him talking privately it was in a public forum so i thought it was an okay thing so out of that i got a a gig as the managing editor of the film journal which is a long-standing uh monthly publication that was goes back to i don't know the 40s or 50s uh it's called the independent film journal initially then it was called the film journal and i was kind of had a great gig with that outfit for two years uh 81 to 83 and then i got a job at the hollywood reporter to be uh what i thought would be a a, a writer reporter and I, they actually wanted an editor uh so i took that because it seemed like a good thing at the time um uh, editing and writing uh, headlines and whatnot uh after that was um I had a... Uh, Let me stop you uh, for a minute and, and ask was, you a question. Stop right here. Okay. No, I just want to ask you a couple of questions because before you yep. get too far on it, you yep. mentioned your dad, and I know your dad was an alcoholic, and I know you had a much better relationship with your mom, but yep. where did the idea to become a writer come from? Was your dad a writer? Was your mom a writer? And what... And my sense is that if you, like me, had a hard time having people listen to you parents listen to you and and writing at Mm. least this is true for me gave me a way to be able to speak and have people listen and in a way that my parents or my yeah my parents never really could was that the case with you my parents were not very uh enthused about the idea of write my writing about movies because they said it's a very very tough racket and you're going to have the likelihood of, of getting a decent salary, being able to get married, do the usual things, mm. uh, was not high, given that you're in a, in a dicey, a difficult, uh, very, uh, you know, rough and tumble industry. So I basically, it was no encouragement, and you're making a mistake, and wanted to, you should try and invest in something that's a real job that will give you some security. So that wasn't that was where that was at. And my father, yes, he was a writer and he was a very good writer, I think, but he was mainly an advertising guy and he used to write a lot of copy, but he, he did introduce me to the elements of good writing with the elements of style, that book mm-hmm. that everybody is, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, I used to beg him actually for, um, uh, for 
any hints or, or criticism, you know, good criticisms, just what am I doing wrong? What do you think? And he was so, I guess, distressed or guilty about having been a kind of a bad dad because of his alcoholism. He responded to my pleas for guidance and criticism by saying, everything, you're great. It's wonderful. You're doing a great <laughs> oh, job. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Which is not what I was looking to hear. I was looking to hear constructive, you know, tell me, tell me what's wrong. One time he told me I used too many parentheses. So, okay, thank you. That was good. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, he went into AA in 76 and... Um, you know, he's still an alcoholic personality and he was still a kind of a grout, grouchy guy and kind of, you know, never that delighted with the idea of being thrown into fatherhood. He wanted right. to be a kind of a journalist and a writer himself. He didn't want to be a, uh, you know, hotshot advertising guy, but he did that because that's where the stability and the money and he had kids to support. So, you know, that's what a lot of people wind up doing. They, they do what they feel is the right thing in terms of being able to provide for uh, for children and for uh, marriage and take care of, you know, provide some stability, which uh, I understand, of course. Yeah. Did you have so, brothers and sisters? I know you had a sister. Younger brother, younger sister. Um, my sister was um, um, smart, very smart, but a pain in the ass, and she used to challenge me all the time. Uh, they, my brother, Tony was younger than she, they, it was kind of the two of them because they were closer. I was yeah. the pathfinder, the older of the, I was, there were four years separating my sister and my younger uh, brother. Um, and neither of them had very happy lives. I regret to say my sister became, fell, fell prey to schizophrenia around schizophrenia often kicks in around puberty so starting around the age 14 15 she started to have more and more problems it was very difficult all around for my parents for her of course primarily but my parents in general and the the, the medications were not that great back then uh, they used to give them uh, people who suffering schizophrenia they used to give them these um, drugs that would kind of put a blanket over your head and they would suppress the symptoms but it also make you feel like you're being smothered so that was really really difficult for poor laura but she was mm -hmm. a very very smart uh, person with a with a, a beautiful smile and and uh but she it was just nothing but torment the poor woman mm -hmm. um anyway she got she was um succumbed to cancer in oh six oh seven and she passed in oh eight oh eight and my father died in oh nine and um then my brother died of an accidental overdose of oxycontin and alcohol and that was in october of oh nine and um Boy. I, Wait a minute. Now I'm, now I'm getting. Yes, that's right. He was 09, and my parent, my father, and, and sister died in 08. So it was just me and my mom. But um, the uh, I had been. I got married in 91 to Maggie. We had two uh, two two sons, Jet and Dylan. Both of them are doing great today. Both living in the area of West Orange, and uh, Dylan's living with his mom right now in uh, Montclair. Uh, and uh, I think of you know people who read the column know that Jet and Kate have been married since seventeen. 
Uh, they have a daughter, Sutton, who I go to see all the time. And um, and my whole journalistic thing basically took off in a good way, in a really great way, actually, uh, starting with my column, my very first column, which began in 98 when I was working at People magazine. I'd been a, a pretty pretty successful Entertainment Weekly reporter uh, starting in 91, roughly, when Barbara O'Dare was the editor and then got to know Cable Newhouse, which is also the uh, the West Coast editor, mm. and did pretty well with those guys. I also did a lot of uh, LA Times, you know, calendar reporting and stories um, all through the 90, 91, 92, 93. Um, there was the whole Last Action Hero thing, which happened... Uh, which was not great, but it wasn't anything I did wrong in particular. It's just that uh, uh, I couldn't, I was told that a second screening of Last Action Hero, a research screening, which at the time was considered a big story, but it would be nothing now. Um, so I wrote this thing that, that it did, it seemed like a, uh, nobody seems to know if it actually did happen, but apparently it, it, this happened, the screening happened in, Pasadena. We were told up and down that it was um, basically not uh, a screening had not happened by the Sony reps. Didn't have any reason to say no, but I was told by others that it had. They were keeping it secret. Uh, anyway, so because there was no clear line about the story, I wrote that it was basically I used the motif of Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone, the realm of imagination. <laughs> and and I thought that was a pretty good way of saying it. You know, it's just like, who knows? You know, maybe mm. it happened, maybe it didn't. But it was interpreted by the by some that it was a more of a repertorial certainty that that it had happened, and I didn't say that at all. But it was a big mess. Anyway, the long and the short is that um, I became a controversial person at that point. That was ninety three, and um, uh, my. I, I sort of went over to People sometime around, was it 96, which was miserable. I hated working for them. Um, but the the, the big um, change, the thing that made my life really come into focus in a great way was getting a column. I was the, one of the first people from the print world who became a an online columnist, which is a fairly exotic and new thing yeah. back in the late 90s, as you know. Um and the first, uh, very first column I had was uh, called uh, Hollywood Conf Confidential, which was a terrible title, but it was so conventional. But they loved the idea of, you know, of, uh, of borrowing from L.A. Confidential, what had been yeah. a, a film in 97. And uh, you see, it was firstly with um, Mr. Showbiz, which was a uh, part of an ABC News. Uh, it was a website that was relatively, uh, you know, new to the game. And then I would moved over to Real.com uh, and a regular salary for a twice-weekly column, this was, twice-weekly. And uh, that was uh, lasted until 2002. And then I, um, I got, I think that ran out in terms of uh, salary uh, or the, the, the job ended or something. And uh, I was picked up by Kevin Smith, who hired me to write the same kind of column for his site called movie poop shoot which is embarrassing oh. but <laughs> that was you know kevin's sense of humor and whatnot and um i finally got uh, uh i mean i became um uh i was cut loose by kevin he ran out of money and 
04. He said he had to cut me loose, but he was nice enough to give me one more or a couple of extra months. And it wasn't that much of a salary. So I basically learned how to start my own site. And um, <clears throat> I didn't know anything about about HTML or coding or anything, as I just had to kind of learn it bit by bit. And it seemed horrific in its complexity at first. But I did get this this uh, my very first Hollywood Elsewhere column launched in in '98. Uh, excuse me, in '04, '04, mm. uh, August of '04. The '98 was the online column for, um, and it was wonderful because my first ad, I got my actually got an ad from a guy named Will Casey, a mm. publicist at Fox Searchlight, and he went over and told the the marketing guy. And this was a fairly new thing, to, you know, advertise with online sites, but. Mm. Uh, I managed to survive because of the the kindness and the and the and the you know the kindness of strangers, so to speak. Uh, they 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 liked the idea of putting ads up, so I was able to get launched starting in '04. Um, and within it was a little touch and go, you know, a little 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 spotty in '04 '05. But starting around '06, it became a regular, steady thing. And I became comfortable with the uh, advertising jargon and how to, you know, basically appeal to people. And it wasn't that difficult. And so starting around 06, certainly by 07, it was a pretty good uh, living. And from 07 until 19, which would be, what, almost 15 years, um, it was a really, really great life. And I was delighted with how... Um, how much uh, fun and 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 how how charged it was, and it was just magnificent. Well, and, you would and then, you would course, begin the... you would begin your year at Sundance, right? You were like a kind of a jet setter because you would start. You used at... to go every every year mm -hmm. at Sundance, yes, in January, followed by I even went to uh, Berlin once, and I didn't go to the Berlin now much because I wasn't all that taken with it. But I became a regular can person in the early part of this century. Start, uh, my very first Cannes Film Festival experience was in 92 for Entertainment Weekly, but then I started returning to Cannes around 99 or was it 2000. So I've been going there for like 20 odd years, 22 years. And of course, Toronto started to be a big thing and I mm -hmm. started to become a regular with that. And I didn't start coming to Telluride until 2010 because I thought it was too expensive before, before that. But I was able to afford uh, uh, Telluride starting in 2010. And I've been a regular there all that time. So what a what a glorious time it was! I was I'll always be delighted with how really beautiful life was, um, from not just uh, you know Hollywood elsewhere, but also the whole column thing and Entertainment Weekly before that. So basically, from Entertainment Weekly became a regular thing, and I was like happy there from '91 on. So from 91 to it's basically almost 30 years almost 30 years mm. uh because the, the hollywood elsewhere income things started to become interrupted as of 19 when the woke thing happened and people started to you know jump on me and condemn me for being mouthy and opinionated mm. not saying what i'm supposed to say uh you know and and then uh the, the summer of woke happened in 20 and then i was um I was zotzed by the uh, uh, the, the um, uh, Critic Choice Association in 21 um, because some people got angry at something that I briefly posted 
which was a, uh, a brief comment from another person who I, you know, it doesn't matter who said it, but basically the, uh, it was about the, there being an analogy between the tragic Atlanta uh, massage parlor killings that happened and and there was some thought that perhaps there that the way people tend to respond to uh, to real life events in terms of the Oscar voting, like for instance, Ava DuVernay back in fourteen tried to link up what was happening in um, in Missouri, you know, the the shooting of what's the name the, the uh, to to her film um, Selma. She was saying it was the same thing, you know. There's all this um, there's all this power and this and this rage happening out of uh, what's happening in near st louis i'm forgetting the name of the town for some stupid reason anyway the long and the short is that she tried to link that up and i this and there was an analogy between the tragic seedings in atlanta and maybe some sympathy some some extra passion for chloe zhao and her film uh, nomadland and that was interpreted as a um, something wrong about analogizing the two or something, but people just lost their shit about it. And um, I uh, thought it was out, just contemptible what they, what they did. Cause there was just basically, if, if that analogy was made, for instance, at a party or something, and someone just said, you know, maybe maybe people really vote for Chloe Zhao now because the women who were killed at the massage parlors were, were Asian. So maybe there'll be an even more passion for that film. And nobody would say they would just, OK, whatever. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that people tend to think that way. They'd link these things up. But that became a, 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 a tragedy for me because they uh, they even though I had not been dependent on or really cared that much about the critics' choice, it gave certain woke publicists an opportunity to shut me off and shut me down because they didn't like me anyway, because I've been more uh, honest and, which is to say, more contrarian about the quality of films and, and the likelihood of this or that film uh, becoming a big deal in the Oscar race. So uh, it, it I, I soon began to lose uh, ad revenue and it really kind of diminished the whole, I mean, I, I became basically a poor person within a matter of a year or two. So I've been a, per, a poor person since roughly 21, 2020, certainly 22. And um, I've been living in Connecticut since this year, or was it last year? No, no, late 22, I, I moved there in the summer of 22. And I won't go into the whole marriage thing with Tatiana, but uh, I've plenty about that. But that was. You know. I just want to say that we lived through something that was very horrifying. I write a lot about this on on my Substack, which is that there yeah. there came a moment where the the mob sort of realized they had power, and it it happened yeah. starting in the night in the Me Too movement. They could just extinguish someone's career in an instant, like Al Franken, and just mm. say. You know, it was once accused, forever guilty, and um, and it didn't matter who it was. It just they people went looking for targets, and yep. Jeff became a target, and and they actually went after you as like a mobilized group, calling film festivals like Toronto, mm-hmm. trying to get right. him kicked out, trying to get, shut him down, and even to this day, if Jeff responds to some pearl clutching female film critic on Twitter, and but by the way. 
Jeff has never been accused of doing anything physical to any woman, not harassment, not rape, nothing. Yet, because he writes things like, you know, I don't know, talks about people's weight occasionally or, you know, that, that can be considered somewhat offensive to some people. They've just decided he's the worst human being that ever walked. And, and you'll see mm-hmm. these women react to his tweets like, I can't believe you wrote a tweet to me. I can't. What are you doing <laughs> writing to me? Like, yeah. who, are, who are these people? <laughs> God, grow up. Well, they certainly had the power and they certainly did uh, do what they can to yeah. could to to ruin, to utterly destroy uh, any chance of survival that I had. Yeah, but yeah, I, you, you know, managed to hang on a little bit. You've hung and on and you they haven't shut you up. Yeah. And the thing is, is you really start to see who who has courage and who is a coward in situations like that. You can really see the cowards. They come right out into the open and you say, oh, wow, okay, so you're just afraid, aren't you? You're afraid of the mob. Yep. And what, people don't want to go through what I went through. Uh, people want to spare themselves the agony, the, the difficulty of, of having to change their lives and, you know, yeah. just downscale everything. So it's, uh, nobody wants that. Uh, you, say it's, uh, if it's I were, huh? you say it's understandable, yet we yeah. all live through the, we all remember the Red Scare, and we all watch Oppenheimer and pretend like we're all on the same moral side. Well, mm-hmm. do they know that that's who they are right now? That, that that's who they are in history? That they're those people? Do they realize that? I don't think they want to realize that. I think that they're just basically just cruising along as best they can by not saying the wrong thing and having the right friends and being careful to to not agitate the, the wokesters in any way, shape, or form. And then they know that they'll be safe. That's the main thing. Everybody wants to take care of their own of their lives. They don't want to walk into trouble and, 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 and step into quicksand or potholes. So I, I understand they're wanting to live that way. It's just that it's, you know, like Paul Schrader said to me, 40 years ago, and I interviewed him for American Gigolo more than 40 years ago. Uh, you don't need a conspiracy for of cowardice. Cowardice comes naturally to people, mm. and it's not a big deal. So they just—it's an easy default to become a coward, and and just uh, you know avoid any trouble that's going to you know any kind of potential trouble that might hurt you mm. personally. So that's that's not a big deal. I mean, it's not it's not it's not hard to imagine how this happens. So I don't. I mean, and am I a paragon of absolute moral bravery? No, I'm not. I'm just as much of a coward as other people are in some respects. Um, I see something bad happening. I'm not going to immediately engage and ask somebody to slug me across yeah. the chops or whatever. I'm going to be avoiding trouble. So, you know, I'm not that different than other people. Well, yes, you are. You don't join pylons. You don't go part of a mob. I said that today, actually. No pylons. I really hate the the vicious... Uh, you know, wolf-like behavior that you see on on Twitter when poor when Scott Spanger got beat up yesterday and today, and it was uh, it's it's really disgusting, really foul. But um, people are the pylons are, I mean, to be part of a pylon and to and to and to just kind of gleefully jump into the fray and say, oh look, we can we can hurt this person. We can we can maybe drum them out of the business. We can, we never like them anyway. Maybe we can really exactly. make their lives miserable. You know, 
it's just disgusting. It really is. Like... I, it's very, very uh, horrifying. And before we do my story, I'll just say yeah. that Jeff, most Jeff is probably the only person in the business of Oscars or film that everybody reads. All the famous people read his site. Big, big, big names. And they write him and they talk to him and they know him. Yeah. Some of them have even come to his aid and defense at times. And mm-hmm. that, that's something that is pure gold. And if, if I was a studio and I was writing, you know, I wanted a movie to do well in the Oscar race, I would absolutely advertise on Jeff's site. I would certainly not be afraid of the idiots on Twitter. Well, that's yeah. what I've been saying for many years, and that was um, my my pitch to them. It's not the vast multitudes who are reading Hollywood elsewhere in all the, the, the nations of the globe, and it's not the Kmart people who are reading it. It's the quality of the eyeballs. You're reaching uh, very sharp, knowledgeable, sophisticated people who are reading yeah, and you're there. you're quite influential. Like you were one of the first people that was championing uh, Penelope Cruz, who who ended up with a surprise nomination, and you were championing Green Book, which won Best Picture. And that's the kind of thing that that they they usually say that they want. Plus, if I was a studio, mm. I would want to advertise on Hollywood elsewhere, just to show that I wasn't part of the mob, that I wasn't part of these uh, these these idiot banshees, these crazy people. And that I wasn't afraid, and I was going to advertise, and I was going to do it out in the open. Screw you, <laughs> you know. Well, that's 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 a lovely sentiment, and um, I really would uh, love it if uh, the studio folks, the marketing people, the people that do the ad buys, were to come to that uh, that place in their heads. Um, so far, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of it, but mm. uh, you know they they. They're, they, you know, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're as timid as the next person. That's all. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe it'll change. You know, I mean, I love that I keep going. I love the, I love what, what I do. It's, it's delightful. I've never been happier than like you. You know, we, we feel this great joy at being, um, uh, you know, writing every day and, and being part of the conversation and the, and the arguments and everything else. It's a, yeah. it's a lovely way to to live we're we're lucky in a lot of ways that we don't have to go into a nine-to-five job every day you know yeah yeah um all right so let me do my story really fast um so i was uh a i grew up in topanga canyon i was one of four children my mother was a beauty queen who dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to have my older brother scott and then went to work as a cocktail waitress at Pandora's Box in Hollywood at 19 years old. And in the words of my mother, that was the first time she ever saw a black person. (laughs) At Pandora's Box? In Hollywood, because my dad was a jazz drummer and all of his fellow musician friends were black. And he hung out with black Mm -hmm. jazz musicians. My dad was a jazz drummer. And uh, my mom fell in love with him. And he Mm. moved her out to Topanga Canyon, which is where he had his house. And they had three babies all in a row, and I was in the middle, and mm-hmm. then they divorced. And my dad was crazy. He was mentally ill, um, uh, so much so that he had been put into Camarillo State Mental Hospital when I was a baby, and um, they gave him shock therapy, and, uh, and my mom and grandmother had to rescue him because they say he was so drugged out that he couldn't even speak. He was just a zombie, so they rescued him from that. His life was never really the same 
after that. So I basically grew up with a very sweet, very talented jazz musician who life just beat the shit out of him. He was Mm. just, you know, he lived with my grandmother the rest of his life, surrounded by cats and hoarding and, um, and he, he played jazz up until the day he died, literally. I love that, that he kept playing. That's kept playing. A, that's a lovely and thing. Um, yeah. his last year of his life, I went to see him every single day. And, um, and I'm mm. really glad that I did that because I loved my dad. Um, mm. I loved him. He was such a nice guy. What was the actual um, diagnosis? Did he suffer well, from I don't schizophrenia? Know if that's what they said, paranoid schizophrenia, yeah. but... Okay. I don't know if that's what it was. He was crazy, though, without a doubt, my father. And, and um, gentle and sweet, but like a pothead. Like, mm-hmm. if he wasn't stoned, chances were he could spiral into some weird f- episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and his episodes were always really scary, but they didn't happen a lot. Um, certainly mm-hmm. not with me. He, I mean, I was raising my daughter as a single mom. He would just bring over groceries. He would take her to the pony rides. He would take us her to movies and just sort of be there as the dad figure, which I appreciated so much, you know. Mm, mm. And um, and yeah, it was his life was rough. You know, he had a colostomy bag. He was so broke. He tried to drive as an Uber driver with his colostomy bag, and they complained because it smelled so terrible. So they had to fire him. Um, that kind of How thing. old was that? Was he when that happened? He was toward the end before he got bedridden. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in his, in his seventies, he was so happy mm-hmm. to be driving Uber, but, uh, but they fired him because, mm. you know, my dad, his teeth were falling out, his hair was falling out and he had a colostomy bag. Imagine if this guy picks you up for your ride <laughs> to Hollywood, you know, that would be difficult. So, <laughs> the so... average person would have a issue probably. I could, I could see that. Mm-hmm. But he was just the sweetest man, and I just loved him dearly, and I miss him so much every day. But uh, anyway, so my mom, you know, raised us. She's a hellcat, my mom, total hellcat. Like, I am so impressed with her as a person. She is a ferocious animal, my mom. Like, I've never met or known anyone as strong as her. She's tough. She suffers no fools, and she's mercurial and um, Mm -hmm. explosive temper. If anyone's ever seen me get mad on Twitter, that's sort of my mom coming out. Um, mm-hmm. And she, you know, she was beautiful and ambitious. And, you know, she, she ended up making a lot of her life from dropout to real estate mogul. And now she's leaving a house to every one of her kids. And, you know, toward the end now, I'm, I'm you know, in the last part of her life, I'm trying to spend time with her. It's difficult because she's difficult. But... um but, you know, I'm happy for that. And so, you know, my life was, I was coming out of Ojai, which is where I lived. We moved around a lot as my mom went and flipped houses. And we finally ended up in Ojai, California. And uh, I graduated there and um, immediately left at 19, went to L.A. to try to become an actress of all things. And I was not mm-hmm. pretty enough to be an actress. It's just that I didn't realize it. I had such a big ego and so much ambition that I thought I I am sexy enough and charismatic enough. I can do it. And, um, and I couldn't because I wasn't pretty enough. (laughs) I couldn't even get my foot in the door. And, uh, and so that all bombed out and, and I, I stumbled around LA for a while, this and that job receptionist here and there. And then finally I, I, uh, I went to therapy and that helped me get into college and I finally graduated uh, at 29 years old from UCLA 
And in that time, I had... What was your major at UCLA? It's so humiliating, but I'll tell you. Playwriting. Mm -hmm. Playwriting! Okay. It's like, who gets a... Why is that humiliating? Because who gets a degree in that? Like, you don't need a degree in playwriting in life, but... Mm-hmm. Needless mm-hmm. to say, two things happened to me in college that, that affected the rest of my life. And one was I took a human evolution class, which really mm-hmm. kicked off something in me about life. And it, it, it put things in perspective and helped me understand a lot. And from then on, I've just been rooted in this idea of, of human evolution to explain the things that we're going through. Um, and the other thing was I kept a, I took a lighting class and I kept a journal where I, I did drawings and I wrote and my lighting teacher, who was fairly sophisticated, um, told me that my writing was so good and so moving that he had never come across anything like that before. And then in mm-hmm. my set design class, I, I painted this thing, this, I created this set and this, um, my teacher told me he had never seen anything that creative and good, but maybe they were just lying. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but, but both of those things gave me, made me look at things a little bit differently as to who I was and what I was capable of, as opposed to just being, you know, an actress or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and then the last thing that happened to me was that I entered the Samuel Goldwyn writing contest that they had at UCLA. I wrote a screenplay in like three weeks and it it placed it was one of the all the ucs have this writing contest and you can enter it and if you win it you win some money and you get your name in the paper and stuff and mm-hmm. and i got third place in that for a screenplay that i wrote and it went into oh. hollywood reporter and variety and all these agents called me and stuff and it was it was too overwhelming for me at the time i was too young and it was i didn't know what i was doing and so i it really did didn't do anything for me i never took advantage of it or got a deal or an agent or anything Mm-hmm. It was just something that happened to me, you know, but it did help me get into grad school at Columbia Film School. And I went there for one semester and then I didn't like it because I couldn't really, I didn't really have the personality to be a director. Like I was too shy. I mm-hmm. couldn't ask people to be my lighting. I, yeah, I'm, I'm the opposite of you. You're not shy at all. I'm totally shy. It's crippling. And so I wasn't a good director. I'm a much better writer because it's just me and the keyboard, you know, mm-hmm. um, but then I met this guy and I dropped out of Columbia and I came back to LA and he, he went back to his wife and it was a really horrible, traumatic relationship. And after I made such a huge mess of my life, I got online uh, in 1994 because I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I'm going to go on the internet. And so from there, I, I started writing about film in this news group and um, what group was it? What was it called? One of it those was called binary groups. Yeah, it was called Bitlist Serve Cinema L, and it was on Usenet. And all we did mm. all day for years was just write about movies in this group. Mm. It was my blogging training, really, my blogging school, because mm. I was writing for people who didn't know anything about me except words on a page. And so you learn how to be expressive, you learn how to be volatile, you learn how to move people with your words just by doing that. And I ended up meeting a lot of guys and, you know, going across the world. I met a guy in, in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, a guy in Michigan, a guy in Germany, <laughs> mm. all because of my writing. And mm. eventually I would meet a guy in Italy and I would go over to Italy and I'd come back pregnant and um, give birth to my beautiful, wonderful daughter, Emma, who's the absolute center of and joy of my life. And... Um, yeah, he, mm-hmm. her father. She came. She came into this world. What year? Nineteen ninety-eight. 
98. I was going to say 97, but okay. And right after I had her, I had on this news group, I had discovered that I was pretty good at Oscar predicting. We talked about this last time because LA Confidential was supposed to win because it won all these critics awards. And I just kept saying, no way, Titanic's going to win. And they were saying, no, it's Mm. not. And I can go back on Google groups and I can search my old emails and they're still there. All the emails we wrote back then, they just, they archived them. And um, I can go back and look at my Titanic prediction. And that's what hooked me onto the Oscars was getting that right. And when I, and then, but there was another time in 1992 when I had seen Silence of the Lambs and I thought, this is the greatest movie. It has to win Best Picture. And when it did, it, it made me more interested in the Oscars because I thought, oh, wow, okay, the right film won. And so mm. after I had a baby and I was in this guest house, I was, you know, was, internet was starting to really come up and people were talking about how profitable, profitable it could be. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start building websites. And I built this website called Cinecene.com, which I think is still there. But soon after, I built a website called Oscarwatch.com in 1999. And it was just like your site. It was just a a crude HTML site that mimicked the newspapers. And they didn't realize it then, but all these blogs were about to put all of them out of business. They were still in print and stuff, and it was going to take them a while to catch up. And eventually, mm-hmm. you know, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, they would all have Oscar bloggers. But, um, you know, you and I and David Poland kind of got there first. Um, mm-hmm. And so the Academy sued me in 2006 and I had to change it to Awards Daily. That's where it is now. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about politics just a little bit here because people will want to know the elephant in the room which is that Jeff and I disagree on a very fundamental issue and we don't talk about it. And the great thing is that he and I have such a good friendship that he doesn't care, right? He isn't somebody who is weak of character to where if I write about something that is verboten, he's not going to drop me as a friend, right? And that's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why I like and respect him so much. So, but anyway, I was sort of red-pilled in the summer of 2020, just no point in dancing around the issue and uh <laughs> and that means that i was um horrified by what well, was happening yeah but you, but you were red pilled over specifically uh deciding or coming to the realization that there is something truly diseased about the progressive left and it was becoming yes. really nuts and you started saying that yeah and, and and the only difference is between me and a lot of people like a lot of people got red pilled that summer Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you can read more about it on my Substack. That's all I ever write about. So everybody knows my story over there. But, right. you know, in the New York Times and the, and the riots and all that and, and the bizarre new religion that overtook the left. Most people that I know who are red-pilled, like Jeff and other people, um, Bill Maher, Sam Harris, Barry mm-hmm. Weiss, um, blocked and reported people, people like that, they hover in the middle. Right. They don't ever cross what I call the Trump line. And the Trump line is they stop there. They still agree with the left that Trump is the world's greatest evil. And they don't go from. So so the only difference between me and Jeff is that I did cross that Trump line. That doesn't mean I'm a supporter of Trump. It doesn't mean I'm voting for Trump. It just means that I humanized him and his supporters and I hang around them a lot. I write about them a lot. But it's just a conversation that doesn't come up between me and Jeff or me and any of my friends because I know that it's an immediate 
end to the conversation because it's not something we can talk about. So we just don't talk about it in case anybody I've, is I've wondering. I've met and, and do know uh, a lot of people and would probably have had the opportunity to meet know hundreds, if not thousands of people who are decent human beings and yet they're Trump supporters. So I, I don't uh, I don't say that all Trump supporters are sociopaths. Well, that's uh, good. I'm glad to hear that because I know a lot of people who do feel that way. But um, I don't because it's just a kind of thing that's happened to me and, and, um, and I can't really explain it and I don't want to apologize for it and I don't really want to talk about it much. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, if anybody is interested, they can ask me. Most people don't, you know, and so... I don't ever talk about it that much on this. I'm not going to be talking about it on this podcast, but it is something that has to be discussed because we're going to be having listeners from all over the place, people from Mm -hmm. my Substack, from your site, from who knows where, Mm -hmm. and they should understand that going in. It's not like I'm a Trump supporter and Jeff is a liberal. It's not that simple. It's more complicated than that, but it's just... I used to be a good liberal all my life, and I, um, but I just want to be clear i'm no longer regard myself as a liberal i regard myself as a kind of a left center type uh with with sympathy for a lot of the anti-woke uh you know uh voices out there yeah. and i just you know because it's gone crazy uh, since 2020 or 19 thereabouts and the the left has gone over the cliff and and uh that's why i, I it's not i don't think my values have changed and I don't mean to butt into your time, Sasha, but I just, okay. you know, I don't regard myself as a as a as a classic liberal. I, I mean, I do in a way, but but the, the left has made things impossible for for people like me, for for sensible liberal types, which is how I regard myself, despite my uh, um, <clears throat> my having been, a, a, a you know, an adventurer in the psychedelic realm when I was young and all the other things that you do when you're young. Anyway, that's I just well, I and, and when I was growing up, man, the mm. the left were my heroes because right. they were the side that stood up for free speech and they were the side that stood up for challenging the government, you know, and they were the side that, you know, uh, didn't believe in propaganda and censorship. But the thing that's mm-hmm. changed in, in since 2000 is a lot but the main thing that's changed is money and power has shifted to the left because of silicon valley and a lot of the ways that that um you know obama kind of merged culture and politics in a way that hadn't been done since the 1950s when it was on the right and when you build this kind of utopia which we did sooner or later you're going to start running into people that don't that you don't that's why we had the me too movement on there. they just start purging people from utopia and I don't recognize the left of today, but I mean, I don't feel like any of my main policy issues have changed. You know what I mean? And that's the weird part is that I don't know what I am, honestly. <laughs> like, I just don't even know anymore. But Well, anti-crazy left is good enough for me. So. Anti-crazy left. And basically, I feel like I'm a humanist is how I see it, is, is I, I relate to people like Matt Taibbi, Walter Kern, Glenn Greenwald, Megyn Kelly, right. people who hover in this. And even Megyn Kelly is a little more opinionated than Glenn Greenwald and, and Matt Taibbi, who really just stick to being journalists um, mm. and write about everything. that and, and they resonate with me in a way. But I don't feel like I need to find a tribe at the moment. I'm just fine on my mm. own right now, just waiting it out. What I want to be able to do is write as honest honestly and truthfully about the moment we're living through without bias so that Mm. 
someday mm-hmm. I can have left a trail of breadcrumbs for people to find back, you know, find and say, okay, there not everybody went along with this. Some people mm-hmm. were pushing back, but it is complicated mm-hmm. and it is confusing. And it is for me a very painful subject because of so many people that I care about that are, that are really mad at me, you know, for what has happened, what they believe has happened to me. But, um, anyway, it hasn't so, happened to you, Sasha. You've just been, uh, sanely, uh, see, <laughs> commenting on what has been happening amongst the true crazies which is, you know, the hard left. I mean, there, there's never just complete loss of rational thinking on their end. But they're uh, so punitive. They just want to destroy people. And I can't, I can never go along with that. Even Scott Feinberg, what happened to him? Um, I don't, I don't agree with this weird, they just to decide to swarm him for some reason. And this mm-hmm. time they're going to get Scott, you know, like now they're going to get Scott. Like who's next? Don't people realize that, that like, you're not, you're next. You know what I mean? But, um, but anyway, to finish up the story, what mm-hmm. I have found in the last few years was freedom of voice and my voice. The only thing that's ever really mattered to me other than my daughter to the point where I would literally kill myself if I didn't have it was, mm-hmm. f- was freedom of the mind and freedom of the voice. It's like, we talked about that where the end of 1984, where he finally gives up to big brother and he feels a bullet going through his brain. Because to him, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to him is that he can't think for himself anymore. His mind isn't free. And that's how I feel. And so I love that I have Substack and I love that I can write stuff how I want to write it and how I like to write and that people read it and respond. And that makes me really, really happy. My daughter is living in Ohio, which doesn't make me happy, which makes me very sad. Mm. But but I'm going to, you know, be spending a lot of time out there with her just so that, you know, I can keep my relationship with her going. Mm. We have a good relationship. It's just that she has a great relationship with her new boyfriend, not new, but her boyfriend Mm. of four years, and they're probably going to get married. And, you know, what are you going to do? That's it. Uh, They have their own lives to live. Uh, You you know, you you can't uh, conduct them like an orchestra. Uh, Sometimes it seems like it would be a good thing if you could, but um, I... uh, I, I understand what you're, what you're, I mean, you have to let them find their own way and make their own mistakes and yes. do what you can to help them when they do need help or want your advice or whatever. But right. You have to let them, let well, them go. Let yeah. me ask, I agree. And thank you for that. It's true. Let me ask you a couple of, let's do a lightning round. So what was your best and most favorite interview you ever did with somebody? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's a, um, there's, there's more of the, the moments, the relationships you have with various people in the creative end. Um, the uh, I'll tell you one of the most, I guess one measure of a, of a good interview is, is one that you remember many decades later. Mm. And I can, I'll tell you one. Uh, in 82, I think it was, I was at the Film Journal, and I had an interview with a guy at United Artists, uh, Classics, UA Classics actually, his name was Nathaniel Quitt, K-W-I-T. And he was the first guy to tell me that, you know, VHS was, was happening big time. That was mm. like a very big thing. Uh, you know, the industry was very excited about the revenue possibility. And he was the first guy to tell me that there will come a day, not too far in the future, when we will be able to see a movie 
that comes not from tape, but from a data burst, he called it, a data burst being sent along. Uh, wow. You know, high, high, and it was, he was basically telling me about streaming. And I had never heard that from anybody. It was a completely new concept. And I've never forgotten that a guy actually saw that and, and was describing exactly what's happening today uh, through, through streaming. So I, that, that was quite a, quite a knockout. Mm. But, but great, great interviews are, are with, with eccentric um, <laughs> yeah. celebrities. That's, that's, those are numerous. And I don't know where to, where to start. I mean, Warren Beatty would be one, but that's been going on since for about 30-odd years now. I just talked to him recently, by the way. I, I just talked to him. I've been well, urging you, you know this, to be doing yeah. a, inter, a book about you and Warren Beatty's interviews for your whole lives. Like, I would just love that. I think it'd be such a great idea. But it's, it's really kind of a variation on the same, um, same idea, which is basically him saying as little as possible, but being very <laughs> charming and doing so. Mm. And being very, very likable and, and, and very wise, really. But as far as like actually telling me what he really feels, what he's, he's it's always about hinting and indicatings, indications. And, and um, for instance, he told me, uh, we, we were talking about Freakin not that long ago. Freakin, mm. Billy Freakin, who just died uh, two days ago. Um, and he was telling me that I don't, yeah, I don't think that Billy's uh, as aware of the uh, French Connection censorship issue as you might think he is. And that was his way of telling me, maybe he knew, maybe he didn't, that he was on, he was on his deathbed. Well, he must have known. He yeah, he must have known. Yeah. Yeah. But he wouldn't say that. You know, he said, I don't know that he's as, as attuned to it as you are. I said, okay. You know. He's probably like in, you... in a bed, in a hospital bed, hooked up to life support. When, when he said that, you know, he's like, oh, gee, yeah. you might want to back off a little bit right now. Yeah. Um, well, that was a good well, thing to warn you about because it did it did change the way that you st saw the story. Well, I still think that even to his last breath, I think that he owed it to history, to his fans, to everyone to just basically be clear. And, it, and, and it's and it's very, very perplexing. That a man is uh, known for his obstinate, tough guy, uh, come what may, let the chips fall uh, attitude about things. He was not a, a, a wuss in any sense of the word. Why he, of all people, would would seemingly uh, kowtow to the to the wokesters by eliminating the N word in a early scene in the French Connection? It just made no sense that William Friedkin, of all people, would uh, either initiate or or give it approval to this just yeah. bizarre it, does, it makes no sense and it's just a huge bizarre question mark that hangs over his legacy as we speak and it's somebody's got to just explain you know maybe he was not himself towards the end i don't know how to put it but he wasn't that uh out to lunch because he did as you know direct a, uh, a basically it's going to be a showtime i think a version of the k mutiny court martial which is going to be shown at the venice film festival three weeks since and uh, so he was obviously on his game to some extent if he was directing a movie and he was not uh, you know uh, someone sort of babbling and, and drooling he was he was a you know sharp dude all the way along he recently uh, it was last spring attended the uh, uh, Turner Classic um, 
film festival, right? I mean, uh, and that was, uh, he looked old, he looked like not in, his, in the greatest state, but he was, so I don't, I don't buy this thing that he wasn't lucid enough to figure out what was going on. I mean, I think well, he, he might have had, had dementia or something. My dad got dementia and when it comes on, it goes really fast. It's like they're speeding downhill. Um, you know, it's probably really? like more like one of his kids watched it or somebody and they said they heard it, the word, and they said, oh no, you should take that out. Mm-hmm. Something more along those lines, I would imagine. Somebody else told him that he should take it. I don't think he's, he probably wasn't sitting around worrying and fretting about it, but mm. um, someone told him that he that it was, you know, because if you're like a 20 year old and you're watching it and you hear that word, like if my daughter, they don't hear that yeah. word anymore, right? We mm-hmm. stopped saying that word before my daughter was born, like during the OJ trial. That's really when it started that we couldn't say the N word anymore. Not when. And, and anyway. yet Quentin Tarantino used it in his films. Yeah, that's also true. The early aughts. Um, and uh, yes, uh, it, it's. I can't think of anybody else besides Quentin who allowed that word into his dialogue, into his scripts. But well, I, I mean, not in the recent it. years. It doesn't make any sense. It in the seventies, they they all did. Like if you read. Um, mm. Hunter S. Thompson's book on the 1972 election, you'll hear it all through that book. But he's not meaning it as a racial slur. It was just mm. the slang back then. I know people won't believe that, but it's true. That, and Because I, I grew up in that time, and I remember people saying it. I've heard people say it as a slur and as not a slur. But I think Hunter mm. S. Thompson thought he was like one of the black people talking that way, you know? And I think that's what Quentin you Tarantino <laughs> did, too. Quentin Tarantino did that, too. Like, I think he saw it as, like, nomenclature that yeah. was, was appropriate to the certain characters that said it or that it sounded cool or whatever. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, it is what when it is. Was, uh, primary Colors, the Mike Nichols film about the Clintons. And I love their... that movie so much. Yeah, me too. I've been watching it a lot lately because it's... It, you know, it's it's so Kathy Bates is so good in that. All the characters are good. The whole thing is good. Mm. And I wonder if it's true that he had a black son, Bill Clinton, that he, he did have a, a, a baby out of wedlock like that. And I think I think it might be true that that he did. But um, but anyway, it's it's an interesting. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the Billy Bob Thornton character who is based upon um James Carville, thank you. God. It's really, really, really awful that these things happen, which is why I'm glad I'm taking your your memory supplement. Yeah, hopefully that'll work. <laughs> that, um, all right, I'm going to tell you. Not... I, and I forgot to take it today, by the way. Yeah, so I, I forget too sometimes. I skip days. Um, so mm. my worst interview, I'll tell you, was with one of my favorite actors, uh, Paul mm. Giamatti. Um, I interviewed mm-hmm. him and, and I, I never do interviews and this is probably one of the reasons why because this Im- interview was so awful that I just didn't mm-hmm. even want to go in there anymore you know because you know they're most of the time they're just bullshitting you you know that yep. right you're just getting yep. the same old shit from them and they're not going to really give you any answer and they know it too mm-hmm. and Paul Giamatti was doing Cinderella Man I think and the publicist like begged him to get on the phone with me thinking it would make a difference in getting a nominee. So it wasn't even in a room. It was on, a, on the phone. Okay. It was over the phone. And mm-hmm. he literally just gave one word answers to all my questions. Like, 
So, you know, and I was just bullshitting him. I was doing it, you know, what I was, I was just doing it because I wanted him to get the nomination. I was doing it because I liked him and Mm -hmm. I liked the movie and um, I liked the publicist. And so I wanted it Mm -hmm. to be a positive experience. I wasn't trying to be like any sort of, you know, I don't know, gossip monger or leech or whatever. And so it'd be like, so, you know, what, what drew you to, you know, the usual questions, what drew you to Mm -hmm. the project? Oh, someone sent me the script. Did you, was it, what was it like to work on it? It was good. Like that. The whole thing was like that. It was just one word answer on everything. And I just got off the phone as quickly as possible. I was like, oh, like I never want that to happen again. <laughs> that was the word. I didn't he hold it. He was trying to, to shut down the conversation, basically. Yeah. Because, you know, if you want something to not go anywhere, just give those one or two word responses. And he was sooner like, or later, yeah. the person will take the hint or they'll just give up. Exactly. Um, he was mad that he had to do the interview. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be be look like mm-hmm. he was begging for the Oscar. Right. He didn't want it to be like a dog and pony show, which it is. And, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know how to tell him, look, I'm not one of those people. I genuinely like your work and I'd really love to hear all this. And I should have, if I had more balls, which I didn't back Mm -hmm. then, I would have just said that. Mm -hmm. I would have said, look, man, if you don't want to have this conversation, it's no skin off my nose, you know, (laughs) that that would have been an okay thing. I'm doing you a favor here, pal, (laughs) but I didn't do that. I just got off the phone like a coward. (laughs) So. You know, funny, he was um, he was just basically playing the manager. He was rooting for Russell Crowe to win the, the boxing matches and whatever. He was very good. I mean, he was he was. But the, his crowning performance, the one that he should have won for, of course, yeah. was, 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 uh, was, you know, uh, um, the, the Alexander Payne's film. Uh, Sideways. Uh, Sideways. Sideways. Yeah. 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 One of my so, favorite movies. Yeah. And and maybe he'll have a, a chance when uh, everybody starts seeing the holdovers because that's supposed to be an excellent performance from him. So we'll see. I hope so. Um, and and you know, uh, that was my worst interview. And I think my mm. I, I can't even think of an interview that I thought other than you know like my my conversations with David Fincher, which weren't really interviews. Mm. Um. But I mean, just in general, when you're on the job and you're doing an interview with somebody, it's usually 100% bullshit. They don't know you, mm-hmm. you don't know them, and they're not going to give you anything except, uh, but, but I, you know, I, I think there are, like Kristen Stewart, I would say, um, seemed like a more real person when I talked to her, mm-hmm. uh, like she was actually in the moment, really, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I always think when I get into those things, like I'm the least interesting person in the world and this person has to talk to me. <laughs> they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk to them, you know, but I had uh, an opportunity. I was writing the, when I was working at Canon films as a press kit, kit writer in 87, um, I was doing the press kit for tough guys. Don't dance, which is directed yeah. and written by Norman Mailer. And talk about uh, the Paul Giamatti attitude. He was completely not interested in this pain in the ass publicity press kit writer calling him and asking him if we could uh, talk a little bit, and I could, you know, for for the bio part and free some quotes in the press kit. But uh, I won him uh, slowly over, and after we got to know each other a little bit over the phone, um, we were actually. Um, doing pretty well and he was giving me some interesting quotes maybe maybe from his uh kit bag but still yeah and and towards the end of the conversation he said look i was i was uh, kind of an asshole there i'm uh sorry for being that 
way with you. And we had a nice chat. So let's, uh, it was nice, nice talking. So, and I was very, very taken with that. And then later after I wrote the press kit, uh, and I sent him a draft of it just to kind of make sure everything was okay with him. He got back to me and we went through an editing session and he told me exactly how to change certain paragraphs where the, where the, the paragraph break would be semicolons, period, everything. That's amazing. Delighted. I'd never, I said, I'm talking to Norm Miller. He's giving me specific edits on something I've written and and telling me how to improve it. It was beautiful. That's incredible. Amazing experiences. That's amazing. That, that would be just the greatest thing. And I know that if you get a moment to, to sort of impress them a little bit with your conversation, they'll, they'll chill out and they'll, they'll be a little bit better with you. I just wasn't able to do that because I was caught so off guard by his answers, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that I was like, whoa, okay. And it, it made me nervous. And so I wasn't really thinking about it with him particularly, but. Um... It was the, it's, it's in human nature, by the way, when you get to know somebody when they're kind of coming up and, and uh, in the indie realm, as Greta Gerwig was 10 years ago, um, uh, I remember particularly uh, during when I got to know her a little bit after um, the um, uh, Greenberg, which was '09, mm. I think she was in that with Ben Stiller and, and Noah was the director. And that I think that was '09, right? Something like that. Mm. Something close to that. And she was very, you know, I mean, I, I just talk about a simpatico, a good vibe. She was, um, I mean, I just felt really comfortable with her, and I and she she liked Phil Spector. She was telling me about the, about the Phil Spector uh, song albums that she liked, and she was. Uh, we talked about music. We they she, we got along so well that we met at a downtown restaurant with uh, uh, somewhere in the Lower East Side, and we had a nice, really nice dinner, a nice friendly thing. And later, when she had finished uh, uh, directing, but it was still editing, um, uh, Lady Bird. We met again and she was, you know, she was still in that phase of coming up. What happens is that when you really hit it and you become, uh, you know, a, a big deal in your in your field and you're dealing with, uh, you know, you, you kind of find a, a better class of a friend, a better class of mm, <laughs> interviewer. <yeah. laughs> and you, know, you basically kind of say, OK, well, that was that was fine. We were friendly when I was coming up. But now that I'm the director of Barbie or now that I'm the director of Little Women, it's a little bit different. So I don't know that we're going to keep going. The way yeah. We yeah. And that's just human nature, you know, find a better class of, 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 of friend when you get, uh, you know, people are, are like this. This is just what people do. Well, they adapt to their new, you know. I'll give a couple of celebrity stories, which is that one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was walking down the street in Telluride and Luca Guadagnino actually said, uh-huh. Sasha and I turned around <laughs> Luca Guadagnino mm-hmm. the director and he gave yeah. me a big hug and he told me how much he loved my work and and that just really blew me away like how did that happen but he did and it was that was a really really great thing um and then I think in Telluride like I met with Lupita Nyong'o during 12 Years a Slave before she became famous and that was a good conversation and Shailene Woodley before she became famous She's- Shailene Shailene, right? Shailene, yeah. and um, Laura Dern I talked to there, who was really nice, and Tilda Swinton also, who I talked to. And, and I did meet with yeah. Kate Blanchett once, one-on-one for an interview, and she was also quite charismatic mm. and forthcoming. And 
So it's not all negative. I shouldn't always just focus on the negative. There have been some good ones here and there. Oh, and um, yeah, meeting the the Fincher crew, Trent Reznor and those guys was always a big thrill. You know, when did that all... happen? Uh, Trent Reznor. When did you meet the Fincher crew, Trent Reznor? When did you? Was it around the time of? Um... Well, how I got to know David Fincher was that you know I've always been a huge fan of his, obviously, mm. and um, you know I basically lost my mind trying you and I both trying to get social network to win in 2010 yeah. over the king speech um and he didn't really notice me then but in the next year with dragon tattoo I had been pushing for that movie really really hard and he ended up getting a best director nomination for it even though um the next year i mean even though it didn't get an oscar nomination for picture but rooney mara got a best actress nomination that was a really big deal because the studio mm. had given him so much crap about hiring her um and so after he got that nomination what was the crap what was the crap about what did they, they didn't not want like they didn't people? want him to hire her they didn't want her they didn't like her as the I think that's mm. how it went. I don't know. But there was a lot of bad press about it, and it was weird. Mm. But anyway, so when they got nominations, um, I heard from Trent Reznor, and he te he tweeted, he sent me a direct message on Twitter, and then he mm. said, and I said, this isn't Trent Reznor, and he said, yeah, it is, and he said, look, I'll follow mm. you, and so he followed me, and I saw it was him, and I was like, holy shit, and when mm. I wrote my Dragon Tattoo review, he he linked to it. And it was like the biggest traffic day ever on my, my website. Mm. I'll tell you something about charisma, bro. Like mm. people who have charisma, like Warren Beatty, I met him at a party and he was really old by then, mm -hmm. but he still had so much like charisma. It really does feel like someone's coming, you know, up to you with these golden gloves and like, you know, pressing them against your heart like it is it's so you're not able to control yourself when you're around someone like that because you just you know and that's what Trent Reznor is like he's just so charismatic it's ridiculous but anyway so he said yeah yeah I you know we, we know about you and we want to meet David Fincher would like to meet with you and I was like what mm. so then we you know I met with him and and he and I met for the last 10 years every so often just sitting down and talking for a couple of hours about movies and stuff never mm. his work because he hates talking about his own work but and then we made that he you know he got me involved in that little netflix thing which was supposed to be an ongoing series but it only had one season because not mm. enough people watched it unfortunately and um and the one of the worst thing that's ever happened to me is when when that show was about to air all of those hideous people on Twitter like gathered all these tweets of mine and sent them, literally sent them to Netflix and sent them to, to the director and tried to try to get me. And it, it just was, you know, it was a lot for them to deal with and fuck them. Excuse my language. Was this 22 or 21? Whenever it was now. that it finally, you know, we were filming it. It took a long time to get going to write and to produce. It took a really long time. Like, we started in 2018 and then COVID happened and it was all put on the back burner. And eventually right. we, you know, we filmed it, we did the voiceovers and we, we got it all ready to go. And by the time it came out, literally the whole world had changed by then. Like the stuff that I wrote about in that script wasn't even relevant anymore. And so we had to keep changing it because so much had COVID had emptied out theaters, you know, right. everything was about identity politics now and the woke revolution and all that. Mm -hmm. So I think our show 
kind of seemed like it came from a different time because it wasn't speaking to the moment because it had been done some, you know, years before. Mm. But either way, it didn't matter. It was still really fun to do. And I'm really glad that I got to do it, you know. Mm. Um, didn't Fincher, by the way, say at some point within the last, maybe the last year, not that long ago, um, that he looks back on dragon tattoos, maybe something he didn't work all that well. I think so. Yeah, I think I saw that. But, you know, he wasn't saying it was a bad film. He's just you're not sure that it was as successful as it could have been or something. Well, you you're know? never, ever, ever going to get him to say good things about his own work. It's the one thing I know about mm -hmm. him is he is so I've never met anyone who is more self-deprecating um, right. about his own work. Like He gets embarrassed if you talk about it. I talk about how much I love Seven or Gone Girl or whatever it is. He just he just does like a grimace. Ugh, you know, like no, I don't want to talk about it. And it's it's really weird because he's so talented. That's like uh, that's Sidney Pollocky like. In a, he was like that. He was a very much of a kvetcher and a worrier and a fretter. Oh, he was. And and he would never really take. I mean, he was satisfied and he felt good about the good work that he. But he was always. He would always go to the, well, that didn't work on one. So some way it was good, but he would always be confessional and talking about the, he wasn't, it, nothing was an absolute blazing success to him. It was always a mixed bag, but he was just a very honest fellow. Very yeah. honest. I think with Fincher, he's such a perfectionist that nothing mm -hmm. is ever the way he really wants it. And yeah. so, and he always is, feels like he has to compromise on certain things. Mm. Um, but it is in that reach for perfection that I admire so much in his work personally. I just, there's something in it that I really respond to, even if it isn't all the way to where he wanted it to be. It's still just the reach alone is, is fascinating to me. I remember him telling me in a phoner once, cause I had been a huge adamant, you know, absolutely unstoppable fan of Zodiac. And he says, you know, when I started reading all that stuff, I was saying, I don't need a publicist. You know, you're you're uh, you're doing a good job here. I mean, <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. And yeah. I was so I was like David's friend for a, a, in a sense, in a sense. And then um, I went to see uh, Benjamin Button at in New York, and he was there, and I didn't know what to say. Oh dear. But I, but, but 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 I just didn't have anything that enthusiastic to say, except that obviously, technically, he was fascinating. And I, I like the the audacity of doing the backward, you know, aging process and all that. And I hadn't read the F. Scott Fitzgerald thing, but I, but it was <clears throat> it, it was over. I mean, I couldn't say anything. <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to say something honest, but I couldn't feel like a huge amount of enthusiasm. And uh, anyway, that was the end of the David flirtation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not it's not Zodiac, that's for sure. I mean, they're totally different movies, but. Yeah. But I admire him for being able to do those two different kinds of movies, you know? Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and I love yeah. Benjamin Button. I love going back. I love Brad Pitt on the motorcycle. Like, that's just so... Mm -hmm. I think it, mm -hmm. it means more to me now as an older person that I've lived through um, a whole yeah. life than, than mm -hmm. it did mm -hmm. then. Um, but anyway, Slumdog Millionaire came along, and that was that. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up one of my main... Major. What's Slumdog got to do anything? Well, Slumdog came around in 2008 and won the Oscar the oh, year yeah. okay. of Benjamin Button. Right. But um, David yeah. Carr, I have to bring up, my, my very, very good friend, 
who died. Everybody knows who he is. He's famous. And I, I wish he was still around because he was just such a wise and wonderful. I wonder what he'd make of the whole woke thing. But, you know, I know he would have been canceled because of his book wherein he um, he was violent towards women. I think that they would have the way people don't believe it, but that's crazy as they were during that whole era of Me Too. They would have fired him from The New York Times. You're talking about Me Too in a past tense. You think it's uh, no? Not I don't think it's now? no. It's still it's still just as crazy. It's still just as crazy. But in the in the fury of the moment, they would have fired David Carr. There's no doubt in my mind. But um, because because of his novel, which is called The Year of the, the Gun, Night of the Night called? of the Gun, the Night, the of, night the of the Gun, gun. and and you that's know, a uh, his own story, but one that he did not tell from his own memory, but which he reported because much of his life was dominated or at least infiltrated by by drugs yeah and he didn't trust his own recollections so it was a brilliant right. uh, job of of telling his own story with the quotes from other people so. mm -hmm. and i remember um nikki fink would always say that drug addict wife beater david carr you know <laughs> like so i know that you know he died just before all that happened but uh but i mm. think i feel certain that he would not have been able to escape their wrath um, and because of all the things that happened in his life. Maybe some of that isn't even in his book. You know what I mean? But didn't he cop to this himself? I mean, usually a person who's looking to burnish their image, they're not going to write about having, I don't been know, but I don't out think of control or, or being a, a bad person or being a violent person. I think that I mean, a lot of the stuff that we saw during Me Too was not fair and it was made up out of whole cloth and hysteria builds. Mm -hmm. And so who knows what hysteria would have built around that. Um, mm. But anyway, um, that's that's it. That's about it for our podcast. We've gone okay. on an hour and a half. And um, oh, my God, <laughs> I just want to say to, to the, anybody who's still listening, you can find Jeff at Hollywood-Elsewhere.com. And you can find me at awardsdaily.com or, as you know, on my Substack. Anybody who came from there, you know where that is. And um, uh, I would say follow me on Twitter, but I don't have much of a Twitter game anymore. I have it on lockdown because I cannot stand being bullied by those terrible people. Yeah. And yeah. I don't use Facebook either. Um, and my Instagram is locked down, so... But you're, you can... Really? You're off Instagram also? No, it's, it's under private. Okay. Fine. I have it set to private. So, okay. um, right. but anyway, so I hope that that was fun yeah. for everybody. And now you know where we're coming from. And, and, uh, and, and one last thing I should say is all proceeds for this podcast go to Jeff and to keeping Hollywood elsewhere um, alive and thriving. So if you like this podcast, you like him and his new microphone, and you want to keep, you know, make sure that this all keeps going. The bigger our subscriber base, the more we can start offering perks and stuff behind the paywall. We're just not even close to there yet. But um, I think I'm going to start doing a, a kind of a, a biographical recollection thing. Uh, good stories, you know. Yeah. I think I, I was kind of inspired by talking to you about my uh, fascinating life. And I think I might uh, uh, start doing that as a kind of a side thing. You know. That'd be great, yeah. Um, and yeah. if you want to just record it on your own, you can just yeah. do it straight to um, GarageBand, or you can, you know, I'll talk with you through it if, if you want to do it that right. way, whichever works okay. better for you. But um, all right, thank you so much, Sasha, for the gift of this wonderful microphone that you, that Sasha sent to me uh, recently, and it's really nice to speak in a 
professional, good-looking microphone that could have been used by Edward R. Murrow. <laughs> it's, really, it's really nice to have this. So yeah, thank you very much for welcome. your generosity. And it sounds so much better. I think everybody will attest to that once they hear this podcast. So. Okay. All righty. Have a good right. one. Nice talking to you. Carry me.